Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality, and I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, very excited to have a guest that I've been wanting to have on for a long time, Scott Carter. He is the executive producer of Real Time with Bill Maher. It airs live every Friday night on HBO. And if you're not watching, I have no idea why you're not. It's such a great show. I'm a huge fan. Scott has been the EP on the show since it debuted on HBO in 2003. And he actually was Bill's first producer on his ABC show, Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher. So, uh, well, actually it was Comedy Central and then it moved to ABC. So he and Bill have been together a long time. Scott and I talk about his career producing and writing, even his short-lived stint as a stand-up comic. He's got incredible stories, including a real gem about Carrie Fisher and George Lucas. We also talk at length about the recent controversy on Real Time, which I'm sure you know about, and you'll be interested to hear what he has to say. So Scott Carter... So glad you're here. Nice to be here. This is very exciting. I always um, start by saying how you and I know each other or how I know the guest. And we met, I was thinking it's been probably 15 years. I was, you interviewed me for a job at Oxygen. I don't even know if you remember it, but um, it was with Cheryl Mills. Mm -hmm. But it was here in LA. I, I was out for work. I was working at VH1 at the time. And so it was like, well, can you meet with Scott in LA? And I came to the offices and you were producing the Candace Bergen show. Mm -hmm. And you interviewed me, and it was great. And and uh, and just your name, you know. Obviously, I knew your name through the years. And I'm like, oh, that's the guy that interviewed me at Oxygen. So I don't think I ever saw you again after that interview. <laughs> and uh, and I was there from. Uh, see, I left Politically Incorrect after 1,100 episodes. I produced the first 1,100, and then I left at the end of '99. So Oxygen would have been 2000. I had a two-year contract, 2000. Yes. And 2001. Yeah. And then. Around shortly thereafter, in 2002, I got a call from Bill saying, because Politically Incorrect had been canceled in the meantime, and he called me saying, would you be interested in doing, HBO wants to do a, a, a series, would you be interested in producing? And I said, how many nights a week is the, is the show? And he said, oh, just one, it's just Friday nights. <laughs> so I said, okay, one of the reasons I left Politically Incorrect was that we, we did four or five shows a week. And I had two young daughters, and I only saw them on the weekends, and they would be asleep when I left. They'd be asleep when I returned home at night. And so I made this vow that I would never do a, what you know, what's called a strip show, five, four or five days a week. Right. I would never do that again, and I, I haven't since then. So a Friday schedule, I mean, I've been, we've, we're in our 15th season now, and uh I generally am home every night for dinner, except Friday nights, which go late. Right. So you uh, have a life. We tape, we, we, that's the goal is to have a life. <laughs> right. You know, I, I don't know why there are certain practices in show business that when someone comes up with a new, a new better idea, I don't know why it's not instantly adopted. For instance, Phil Rosenthal, who was the Love him. Uh, creator and showrunner of Everybody Loves Raymond, and the very first day, he said to the writing staff, my goal here is that all of you get home in time to have dinner with your families so that the next day when you come in, you will have stories about the families to tell right. and we can get those on air. And uh, few shows have been as successful as that show was. And yet I know of no uh, subsequent showrunner or uh, project that adopts that rule. But our notion is that we you know we want people to be home as much as they can be home for dinner 
and B, and it one, it's one of the reasons that in our writing staff of, um, we have generally seven or eight full-time writers. In the 15 years, we've had one seat turnover. Wow. That's incredible. So some of that has to do with the way in which people are treated. Right. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think it, there's a little bit of a badge of honor a badge of honor in this town if you stay, oh, I was in the writer's room till 11 at night or 2 in the morning or, you know. Like, yeah, we think we think the opposite is true. Good. And and what Phil, apparently, because I had a lot of friends, and I know, well, I know Phil, but yeah. I also know a lot of the people who worked on the show, and they would say that Phil was an expert in, if there was a problem in a dress rehearsal of determining that the problem might be an acting problem rather than a writing problem. So he wouldn't keep the writers late to solve what had been a performance problem. Mm. Well, that's that's incredibly instructive. Yeah. But but most people, but a lot, but oftentimes lessons that should be learned are not. Yeah, well, that's amen to that. That's so true. So you mentioned it was interesting. You mentioned that you were at Oxygen during that window when um, when nine eleven happened. And actually, I was at Oxygen in New York, and that's when sort of the shitstorm came down with with Bill's show, right? So you were not EPing at that time when no, I had left. I had left by then, and in fact, at that time, I think maybe I'd even uh, left. Or I was I I, my, I had a contract that was coming up, and I was because Candace had left at the end of the we did uh, I think sixty shows the first season in two thousand at the end of the the rap party she told me that she was planning to get married again to this wonderful gentleman named Marshall Rose right and she said but because you left politically incorrect uh, for me I will do one more year in Los Angeles so wow. we did another I think thirty or forty shows second season uh, in Los Angeles, and then she moved back to New York. <laughs> and when she moved back to New York, I then did a few other things for the duration of my contract, one of which was briefly, right before I left, working with Carrie Fisher um, in a, a show that, I forget the original title of it, but I renamed it Conversations from the Edge. And uh, and that went on for a couple of years after I after I left Oxygen. Wait, that was with Carrie? Yeah. And what was what what channel was what network was? I was on? also Oxygen. Oh, it was. I don't remember yeah, that because at all. because when Candace left L.A. to go back to New York, they then got I think a third. I think they maybe changed the name of the show and did uh -huh. a third season back there. But in the meantime, they had this <clears throat> big studio and offices at Sunset Gower, yeah, I remember. Uh, the old Columbia Studios. Yeah, and um, and they um, and so that's when they signed Carrie. Wow, what was it like working with Carrie? Well, well, I had a, an incredible, um, incredible time with her because I had, I think, here's my memory of it, which could or be accurate, I think it is. Uh, I had about one month left on my contract. And so she was doing this new show. I forget what the name of it was. But the first episode was a long interview with Ben Affleck. The day after the interview, he went into rehab. Um, she had a problem with the fellow who actually is very talented and a friend of mine who was the uh, EP. So I got a call the next uh, Monday saying, um, we've got you for one more month. And she doesn't want to work with this EP anymore. And this was a disaster. And Ben's in rehab. <laughs> and we have one more um, shoot scheduled with her, which is going to be at the Skywalker Ranch. And for her to interview George Lucas. So so while we still have you, you must 
take this over. And he must, you know, meet with her. I'd, I'd had her on a couple of shows. She'd been on Candace's show once, maybe twice, and I'd met her some other time. So I knew her a little bit, but I went to her house, talked to her for a while, and then just had a notion of, okay, let's do this. And then I also brought in a fellow named Neil Kendall saying, after I'm gone, here will be the producer. And, right. he and he and I will produce this episode with George Lucas, and then he'll take it on after that. And if you want to, and then they, I think they extended me a consulting deal after that. But anyway... Here's what was so wonderful was um, in, in anticipating this um, interview at the Skywalker Ranch, um, we called up George Lucas's office and said, is there any videotape of Carrie auditioning for Star Wars? And a day or so later, we got a call back saying, uh, not only is there video, but it's video of her auditioning with Harrison Ford. And George has not seen this since since the audition itself, which would have been, I think, 1975. Wow. So what we arranged then was we arranged to have that tape loaded into a monitor, which then she could ask for to be. So it was queued up. Yeah. You know, waiting her instructions to play it back. And then we uh, went on this magical trip up to, and this is not long after 9-11, we went on this magical trip up to uh, Skywalker Ranch. And Skywalker Ranch, it's in Marin County, mm -hmm. and it's this very nondescript um, gate right. that, that then, you know, opens for you. And then, and we were at, this was at night that we finally arrived there, and what happens is you drive on this two-lane blacktop, this little road, and you drive for what seems like forever. And then, if my memory serves, you come upon his private fire department. And then next you come upon... He has his own fire department? Yeah. And, oh and, and, and I mean, it's, it's, it's like going to Disneyland. Yeah. In that it has its own of everything. Its own thing, right. Right, right. Wow. Because, I mean, it's an incredible, I mean, it's a lot of land and it's a lot of structures and that's where Industrial Light and Magic, I mean, it's not just his house. Right, it's everything. It's an entire Yeah, I had empire. a friend that worked there, yeah. Right, okay, so then what you get to next, if I recall correctly, is a series of bungalows. And so we all got our own bungalow to stay in that night. Each bungalow has a key uh, and you were told you can't keep the key because <laughs> people want to keep it as a souvenir. Right. Um, and and so each bungalow is named after someone who was a very important um, influence on him. So, for instance, Carrie stayed in the John Ford bungalow, and inside were all of these great John Ford posters. There was a Frank Capra bungalow. There was Norson Wells bungalow. There was a Windsor McKay bungalow. Which one did you stay in? I, I was in the Windsor McKay. So there were so there were. It was a one of the early great um, animators, one of the first person doing cartoons in motion pictures, and so um, there were stills from yeah. from his work uh, in the, in the bungalow. And um, anyway, so so then the next morning. We we are in uh, a car with her, and we get him to. I go early over to the um, to the main house, and the main house is like going to Main Street in Disneyland. That it's this old Victorian mansion, and you go in, and and so I'm going to meet him for um, for his getting in, into makeup, and he sort of you know, I sort of prep the guests is what one of the things that I always do, right. and so he came in. And said, look, I just want to be clear, I'm not doing this for you. I'm 
you know, I'm going to give you until I think it was I, my memory is 930 was the magic time. Yeah. I'll give you from nine to 930. And that's it. I'm only doing this for Carrie because she's my friend. Wait, and so he gave you a half hour. You did all that for a half so, hour. Uh, this is my memory. Yeah. Right. Right. So I said, I completely get it. Yeah. And we will completely um, uh, do whatever you wish. And so at 930, I'll tell you what, I will let you know. We'll take a, I mean, we got to take breaks every once in a while in the, in the taping. So I will let you know when we've gotten to 930. And of course, we can stop at any time. So, so you know, thank you very much. Um, so then I go back, meet Carrie in the John Ford bungalow. And we have a, we have a few different cameras in different places. And he's at the front door of this Victorian mansion. And I'm in the car with her, and then we're watching her drive up to the gate, and we're watching them see each other for the first time in, I don't know how long they yeah. had been. And then, he, and then he takes her in, and we go into the library. Now, if you've seen the Bill Moyers, Joseph Campbell, Power of Myth okay. shows, they are done from the library at Skywalker Ranch. Oh, wow. And when you come into the library at Skywalker Ranch, uh, first, the whole place is magnificent. In order to get there, you come up this, the steps of this Victorian old Victorian mansion, you walk in, and there's kind of a, a lobby, a foyer, and then you take a right, and you take a right past window displays with artifacts from all of his movies. So there's... Um, Indiana Jones's hat, and there's a whip, and there, you know, all sorts of things from Star Wars and and and, and his other films. And um, then you walk into the this magnificent. The only thing I could compare it to would be the study in the movie of My Fair Lady, the study that Henry Higgins has. Okay, one of those uh, two floors. Right. So so yes. there's so so there's a, a a wraparound balcony, and there are all these books. And when you go in, Lucas's people tell you that you can compliment him about anything there except on the ceiling is uh, a beautiful um, stained glass that uh, lets the sunlight into this room. And you cannot mention it because the person who did the stained glass is the man who stole his wife. Oh, my God. Did you go back so, and verify this story? Like, do you know who that person no, is? I, no, I don't know. I, I gotta go. I, 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 gotta I, I had it. no interest. I had no interest in that's finding the out more. Craziest of it. thing I've ever okay, heard. Okay, so so oh, that's so we go in and Carrie. We have a place for Carrie inside of the monitor that you know George doesn't know yeah. about, and George sits down and we start taping around nine o'clock, and around nine twenty-five, I cue her to begin showing this black and white primitive videotape of her auditioning with Harrison Ford. Right. And it's one of those magical moments that doesn't often occur where the two of them just become transfixed in watching the images of their younger selves. And it gets to be 9.30, and I said, George, it's 9.30. He said, oh, we're okay. Of course, that always happens. And then he kept going so long that this was before the um, reboot of Star Wars for episode one, the fourth Star Wars movie, and John Williams was sitting in the foyer with to to play him the music for the next movie, and he kept John Williams waiting. Not only did he keep him waiting, but, but after the taping, he insisted that Carrie and all the crew um, come with him to lunch. And behind the... 
library is sort of an ice, it looks like an ice cream parlor from the Main Street section of Disneyland. And that's where we all had lunch. And uh, it was not long after 9-11, and I remember him telling me how much courage he thought Bill Maher had. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so anyway, so that was that was the end of my... What a story. And then my contract was running out, and I f- felt like, okay, Carrie's in good hands. Neil, who's great, and I'd worked with on a number of projects, he can take over. And so I emailed her, uh, and I can tell it now because um, she's no longer with us, but her... Uh, email address was brain sugar. Um, and, and so I emailed her telling her that I was going to be, uh, leaving my contract was up and I was going to be going, but you're in good hands with, uh, Neil. And about a minute later, I got an email back from her saying, Shane, come back. And, um, Anyway, and I would see her every once in a while. She used to come to real-time tapings with uh, Salman Rushdie because they were friends and they would go out uh, for dinner. So, wow, so I would see her every once in a while. Unlikely pairing. And she was, well, I don't know. not really because yeah, she was not. brilliant and he's brilliant. And True. they both love um, sparkling conversationalists. And um, and so um, those, those were the thoughts that came back to me when I uh, heard that she had died. Yeah. God, it was such a tragic... Tragic thing. Um, so let's go back to your career early on. You were you you started as a stand up com- comic. Well, I started as a playwright okay. um, in Arizona. I started working with this group that um, is still going after forty five years. I was a founding member of a theater group called the Invisible Theater, and we did only original plays. Every six or eight weeks, we do a, a new play, and we had four or five different playwrights in the group. And so what you would do is you would, can we do like a new play every six weeks or seven weeks? And and there were times where, let's say, you'd be assigned, okay, four slots from now. So let's say, you know, six months from now, you've got to have something new. Um, and if nobody had an idea, we would then make sure all the actors, everybody in the group would have a, like, five minutes uh, of something bizarre. <laughs> and then we would figure out a... Uh, overall concept, and we would do sort of a talent show. But for instance, we had in our group, uh, we had just incredible, some of the most talented people I've ever worked with were in that group. So, and this is Tucson, Arizona, 1974 to 1976, or actually 72 is when the when the theater group began. Uh, I became producing director in 74 and stayed through 76, then I went to New York. But during this time, we had we had among the people that we had, we had a gentleman named Merle Regal, who was the number one crossword puzzle constructor in America. And so whenever we ran out of ideas and we would do one of our talent evenings, and what I would do for the talent evenings was I would let the audience tie me up in ropes and I would do an escape act. <laughs> really? I would I would be tied up in ropes and there are about three secrets you need to know to be an escape artist <laughs> of, of this magnitude, <laughs> right. which is no, no magnitude at all. Not Houdini. And... and um, and, well, I was always a Houdini fan, so okay. I knew what these principles were by which you are able to get out. Um, anyway, so I would do an escape act. But anyway, Merle would do this uh, act called Special Ed, where he'd be in a in a uh, graduation gown and mortarboard, and uh, and we had a, we had a blackboard on wheels, and people from the audience would come up and they would write on the side of the board where he couldn't see them. 
they would write five six-letter words or right. six five-letter words. He would unscramble them in 15 seconds. Wow. Did he go on to do great things? Well, he was, he was, he's the youngest person ever to sell a crossword puzzle to the, to the New York Times. He really? did when he was 13. What? And he was, if you've ever seen, there's a documentary about the world of crosswords called Wordplay. Yeah, wonderful. He's the constructor. Wow. He was so good. He just died a year or so, a couple oh. years ago. Uh, he was so good that at the crossword puzzle tournament, he would not compete. He's the one who made the puzzles for everyone else to do. And um, and he was not only a brilliant crossword puzzle maker, but also on the school newspaper, the University of Arizona. I was the arts editor. He was the copy editor because he had this magical mind yeah. that could figure out the counts to headlines. And that's um, so that's where I first got to know him. He was also a, a wonderful musician. He was the composer for most of uh, the music we did in our theater group. He was also a playwright. He was also a novelist. I mean, it, it was a simpler time hmm. where people were not bombarded by as much media and you had more time to discover your own talents. Yeah. At that point, did you think, I'm going to pursue a career in the theater? And is that why you moved to New York? Yeah. And, and well, at the end of four years, I, <laughs> I I wrote, I don't know, maybe four or five, either wrote or co-wrote, maybe four or five plays for this group. And at the end of that time, I thought, you know what? I'm 24. I'm living in Tucson. I've kind of, I don't have any more ideas. I should maybe travel and see the world and... So, you know, I, I then I then traveled completely around the world. My my older brother was a Rhodes Scholar, so I went to his graduation in Oxford, and then we just kept traveling east, 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 until I finally came back to New York hmm. a year or so later. Um, cool. And... Um, uh, and so I went to New, I went to New York. I studied uh, acting for a year with Stella Adler, yeah. who was one of the prime um, acting coaches in America in the 20th century. She taught Marlon Brando, among others, and um, and wrote plays. And then what happened was, in Tucson, I could write a play or co-write a play with 35 people in the cast and an orchestra. <laughs> And because we were the coolest thing in town, everybody wanted to be in our productions. When I got to New York, there was a price tag on every single thing. So I had no single set, two character political dramas. I had nothing like that. So then my eventual fallback um, was to start doing stand up. And had you always been funny and kind of thought that was sort of a fallback thing for you? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> yes. I mean, I'd always been interested. I never thought that I would be. 50 and be performing in nightclubs. But <laughs> but I thought that stand-up would be... Well, first of all, I've always believed in being busy. Mm. So, for instance, I had a lot of friends in New York who were actors, and by actors, that meant they, st they went to an acting class, they went to auditions, and they called their agents to see if they'd gotten a call back. And that's what they did. And maybe once or twice a year, they'd work for a few days. Right. And that was, that was their lifestyle. And I preferred the lifestyle of a comic where I would... Do as many as six sets in a night. Wow. In the summertime, I could walk from one club to another, do as many as six sets in a night, maybe be getting $5, $10 at some of these places for cab fare. Right. I mean, I remember Catch a Rising Star paid 20 which was a big deal. <laughs> but most places it was, or nothing. Right. And and right. my notion was I'm I'd rather be busy, mm -hmm. and so during this time, not only did I um, begin to 
um, be able to sustain myself. Uh, and during that time, I was always working on a play or a screenplay or something else because I thought my future was going to be in film or television or theater, but it wasn't going to stay in nightclubs. I didn't think that was going to be me. Mm -hmm. But also during this time, I got to know this group of people who, over a period of time, um, I then have worked with for many, many years in, in TV or other places. Uh, you know, I, I think I was the... Um, I'll give you an example. Yeah. A couple years ago, I was at a, a dinner party for... Uh, uh, a birthday party for Kevin Nealon. I think he was turning 60. And there was a tap on my shoulder, and I look around, and it's Adam Sandler, who says, you probably don't remember this, but you were the MC at the comic strip, and you introduced me the first time that I performed in New York. And I performed, didn't go very well, and I was out at the bar, and then you came out a minute later to tell me that I was funny and I just needed to keep going, and I've never thanked you for that, and so I'm doing it now. But there were all sorts of people. When I first, I mean, I remember Kevin Nealon originally, he was a bartender at the at the um, Improv. Um, Colin Quinn was a bartender at the Comic Strip. Um I remember the first time that Chris Rock performed on stage. Uh, he's someone who I've known forever and then wound up working with a lot on Politically Incorrect. Um, in fact, he told me once that before you started using me on Politically Incorrect, I was sitting at home in Brooklyn doing video games all day. <laughs> you see, uh, He had had a brief flurry of success opening for Eddie Murphy and then being on Saturday Night Live. Then he was like, go of Saturday Night Live. And so he was in a complete lull. Wow. And then we began using him and then made him a, in 1996, we had three correspondents that year. We went to, we covered the conventions live. We covered yeah. the primaries live. But our three were Chris Rock, wow. Ariana Huffington and Al Franken. You guys were ahead of your time. Well, we were, we were right at, at our, the time, yeah. our time yeah. in that those were three incredible people. Right. You saw it. Amazing. Are you still friendly with Ariana? I just got an email from her last week. I, I see her. I generally see her when I'm in New York. I, uh, she doesn't get out to L.A. as often now. But, yeah, I keep in, yeah, I keep in touch with her. I just uh, saw her sister, Agape, last Saturday. She's got a new book, and I went to a combination of yoga and meditation <laughs> class uh, that she ran. That, that was delightful. Great. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I I am so fortunate. There are so many people in the world of show business that I have met, both in the world of stand-up and the in world of theater, whatever, yeah. who are so much more talented than I am, who have not had the good fortune that I have. And one of the great things of this almost 30-year career now in television is that there are all these people who I get to see every six months, you know, year in, year out, John Waters or... Andrew Sullivan or Salman Rushdie or right. whatever, and we, you know, we'll have a drink, we'll talk, uh, you, we'll, we'll catch up. I mean, one of those people was Christopher Hitchens before, before yeah. he died. Uh, Carrie was one of those people who I would see every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And so it's like this movable feast that yeah. I have been fortunate enough to be a part of for now, you know, going on three decades. It's incredible. I mean, I, there's so, I have so many questions. So, um, so just sort of moving chronologically after. You sort of hung up the towel with stand-up. Then what happened? Well, hanging up the towel with stand-up was getting a job writing in television. And so that was sort of the yeah yeah. The, in other words, I was a stand-up, and then I got uh, a job writing in TV in New York. And, uh, in New York, and the second job writing in TV in New York was for a show for which there no producer had been hired. Mm. And because I had had a background in running a theater group, because I'd had a background in being uh, working on newspapers. 
um, I just began organizing yeah. the staff that had been hired while they were still interviewing producers. And then Tommy Schlamme, I don't know if you Yeah, know. of course. I mean, West Wing, yeah. he was one okay. of the people who invented the walk and talk, you know, from West right, Wing right, and of course. ER. Okay. Yeah. And he's one of, anyway, he was a consultant for the beginning of what's now Comedy Central, but, but then it was HBO's Comedy Channel. He was hired as an overall consultant. And so when I started organizing uh, the staff of this one group, he went to the people at HBO and said, don't hire anybody. This guy's already doing it. Just hire, get somebody underneath him who can make sure he doesn't not do something because he doesn't know what he should be doing. <laughs> right. And then just go with it. Yeah. And, and so I see him now every probably once a year and I always thank him for yeah. having the faith in me to to become a producer. I never had even considered that to right. be anything. But since then I've um Wait, what was that show? What we know that show was called Night After Night. And that even that whole thing even happened by by circumstance, which was when when HBO was gonna start their HBO's original idea for their comedy channel was to have it be like M T V. Yeah. But instead of music videos, they were going to do clips from films or clips from really? stand-up specials. Huh. And so they were going to hire six sort of VJs who would be comedians who would be introducing um, these different clips and doing funny stuff and then maybe doing interviews or whatever, and or comedy, short comedy sketches. And so the person for their late night was going to be Paula Poundstone. Mm -hmm. Right before it was going to go on air, she pulled out. So they hired a friend of mine, a fellow comedian uh, who was, I mean, I was a low-level comedian. He was a he was a great comedian. His name is Alan Havey, and he actually, people would know him also now from the last two years of Mad Men. He was the guy who took over when Don Draper was kicked out of the firm. He's the guy who oh, took yeah. over. Um, but anyway, so Alan, had, yeah, we were friends, and so he hired me as a writer. Another person he hired as a, a writer was... Um, Michael Patrick King, who's oh, wow. since gone on, of uh, and and other people. Anyway, so um, so anyway, so Alan had just moved to L.A., so he had to go out to L.A. to get all this stuff and move it back to New York, and so that's during his absence is when I just started. There had been three or four people hired. I just started telling them all what to do. Right. And so when he came back, we all had all the different six or seven shows had to give presentations, and ours was the strongest by far. And that's when Tommy said, um, let him be the producer. So, you know, I'd been hired as a writer. I then became a producer. And, uh, you know, so my first two jobs were as a writer. I now, I write a little bit every once in a while, but my my contribution is mostly, I'm in a room with people trying to come up with ideas. Yeah. Um, is what I do. I don't, I mean, we have incredible writers right. on, on real time who that's all they do. Right. I am not one of those people. Um so anyway, so what happened was then, so theater, dead end, leads to stand-up. Stand-up leads to TV writing. TV writing leads to TV producing. And then that keeps going for three decades. And as I get to the end of that, I'm now going back to all these half-finished um, theater pieces that I, that I want to get out into the world before I vanish from the earth. Well, you have a long time. I'm hoping before that happens. So that's that is very cool. Um, so, so when did let's let's fast forward to politically incorrect. What year did that start, and how did you get involved with it? It started in '96. So what happened was, um, or '93 rather. Um, I was finishing up 
I, I produced Night After Night, which finished up at the end of 92. And I also did another series that I um, created and ran for a year and a half called Sports Monster. That was sort of a pre-Larry Sanders, Larry Sanders show about the world of sports, integrating comedians with actual athletes. Mm. And so I was doing two shows at once. And um, anyway, Bill was hired to do a, a comedy special for election night 1992, he and Will Durst co-hosted. And Bill did such a great job. He rewrote the, the script. He did, you know, he's masterful. And um, and so after this went very well, people at Comedy Central said, do you have any ideas for a show? And he said, well, I've always wanted to do this idea that's kind of a variation on the McLaughlin group, hmm. which is what I do often in my living room where I'm having people sit around and we're talking about different issues. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to do a show like that. So then he and I were paired up and... Um, Did and you our, know him before from the stand-up I circuit? met him once. Um, I was living in New York. I, I, I was living in Los Angeles beginning stand-up. I was here for a couple of years. At the same time, he was in New York doing stand-up. And then he moved to L.A. around the same time I moved to New York. We had, <laughs> so we had a lot of friends in common. Yeah. But I only met him... At the wedding of a mutual friend, and I remember the meeting because someone they introduced me to Bill, and I mentioned a joke of his that I loved that he had done on Letterman, and the guy who introduced us, who's now gone, a wonderful comedian named Dennis Wolfberg, and uh, I said something that I really you know admire your work. I particularly you know admire this one joke, and uh, he uh, and Dennis said. Uh, he thinks highly enough of himself already. You need not praise him. Um, and uh, so anyway, so we started working and and we, um, you know, so so and politically correct was instantly successful. In other words, we the first season, we never did a pilot. Wow. The first season was 24 episodes that had to be taped in advance. So they weren't topical. They were philosophical. Um, but so we did uh, 24. So we did 12 days of taping two on a day. And. After the first day of taping, nothing had aired yet. After the first day of taping, it went so well. I remember Roger Ailes and Tom Arnold wow. were, were two of the guests. <laughs> and uh, first day of taping went so well that the that the network renewed us for a second season of 45 without a single episode having been aired. That's incredible. So there's obviously there were so many episodes and so many guests. Do you have, I know it's probably a hard question, but just one great story in your mind from those days of sort of maybe an unlikely bedfellows, uh, you know, pairing or, or just something that went on behind the scenes that you could share that would be that would just be one of those iconic stories? Um, well, OK, the one that first comes to mind, because there are a million, but the first one yeah. that comes to mind <laughs> is in 1996, we... Um, we did the Republican convention was held in San Diego, mm-hmm. and so we did live shows from a theater that is in downtown San Diego. We took over the theater, and we did five um, live shows an hour every night, and um, and we had not only did we do an hour, uh, but also Al Franken and Ariana Huffington did this skit called. Un- uh, strange bedfellows where they were in bed together in their pajamas and they do because that time she was a conservative oh god 
That's it's hard to remember. Obviously, that's right. obviously a liberal. Yeah. Well, she was married to Michael Huffington. Right, right, right. Who ran for, uh, he was a congressman and ran for Senate out here in California yeah. as a Republican. And then Chris Rock uh, was our correspondent who would then go to the convention floor and do, you know, tape pieces, not tape pieces, but live cut-ins from the convention floor. So those three were a continual presence that week. And uh, anyway, there was one show where a guest dropped out at the last minute. And so this booker of ours, who's been with us forever now, her name is Mary Knowles. She's still with Real Time. And... um, Anyway, she got she convinced Jerry Falwell to uh, take the place of the guy who had whoever had dropped out, who I don't remember. I right. blocked out who <laughs> dropped out. But we had the, it was a live show. I think it started seven o'clock, as my memory could have been six o'clock. And at five minutes of six, Bill, 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 we will do a prompter read, go over the the. The written bits, the monologue, you know, he'll go over that stuff. Then he'll go back to his dressing room, close the door, and just be holed up, cramming facts into his head. Yeah. And he's out of pocket. Right. Until about three minutes before a live show starts. So three minutes before the live show starts, I say to him, uh, look, just do the monologue. And by the time we get ready to introduce the guests, the fourth one is going to be Jerry Falwell. And he said, I, you're, you're kidding me, right. or, or used another <laughs> right. term. And I said, no, that's that's it. And and then, and Jerry Falwell was not there yet. Oh so I go out to a loading dock. And uh, and this is, you know, a few minutes before the show. And I'm so I'm not even there. At, I, my memory is I'm not even there during the monologue. And we're Jesus. eking out these last precious few seconds, and I see a figure, a silhouette <laughs> in the darkness come up the loading dock, and it's Jerry Falwell. I've never met him before, and I um, and I reach out my hand, I introduce myself, and then I said, um, uh, Reverend Falwell, today you are my savior. <laughs> and then he gets his seat, so then, and then, and then I remember Bill, a smile coming over his face as he's introducing the three guests, and the fourth is Jerry Falwell. Wow. And he can't believe that it's happening, and then Falwell comes out, and we have a great show. Did Falwell know what he was walking into? Yeah, he, because so he, knew he, the then, show. he then wound up doing it a lot. Oh, interesting. Uh, over, wow. the next, over the next few years. God, that's so funny. So you ended up leaving to go do Candace's show, and then when HBO happened, did you start with Bill on HBO right from the beginning? Beginning? Yeah, he called me when they were um, when when he'd been first been approached, okay. and um, and so yeah, so it's been fifteen years. And then, did you show. guys talk about how it was? I mean, obviously, once a week is a different thing, but um, you know what you wanted the new format to be. Was there a sort of? Uh, I mean, you know, I remember watching Politically Correct Incorrect a little bit back in the day. I was younger, but you know, I've been watching real time probably since the beginning. And so I don't really know how much it, he's changed or, I mean, I know the format of the show is different, but would you say that he's changed a lot in terms of his, I don't know, his approach, his politics, his, you know, no, I think, uh, I think he's been remarkably constant throughout the years. Yeah. Uh, hewing to a, a set of core beliefs. And I think those actually, do us very well during trying times such as the ones we are living in now. Yeah, he's a breath of fresh air. I mean, it's really been so 
I mean, I look forward to it in a way that I hadn't before in terms of sort of must-watch TV because he's the voice of sanity. I mean, he's always kind of aligned with my politics, but more than ever. I mean, even this past week when he called out that Trump guy in the in the one-on-one, I don't know what you call that segment, the first— The top of show. Top of show. Um, you know, and he basically said, like, dude, you're full of shit. Like, let's be real here. You know, I, I think it was about the Russia stuff. But— um, you know, when he goes hard like that, that's when, you know, I'm cheering at the TV because it's like he's not afraid. He does seem fearless. I mean, you know him obviously intimately, but the, at least the on-air persona is that he's fearless and will take on anybody, conservative or liberal. Yeah, and I think that the um, the core values that I was, the core beliefs that I was mentioning a moment ago yeah, um, sometimes have us antagonizing liberals as much as other beliefs have us antagonizing conservatives. Right. So where would you, where would he say he falls politically? Like, I mean, is it sort of a moving target? I mean, obviously he's not a conservative, but I would you know. say it's a moving target. He used to call himself libertarian, but yeah. then the libertarians <laughs> um, have become much more extreme to a point where he's, uh, he doesn't, call himself that anymore. Yeah. So in terms of actually sort of peeling back the curtain a little bit on how real time gets produced, um, obviously there's booking that's not your, you know, you're the Uber producer above, you know, sort of overseeing the whole thing. But other than the guests, you know, what is, what does the week look like roughly in terms of how you prep? Because I know well, there's I'm, rigorous I'm, I'm intimately involved in the booking of the guests. Often it's someone who I've been looking at for weeks or months and think they've got potential. And then at some point just think, okay, they're ready. Our show is harder oh, to do than almost any other show. Right. You really have to know you, your you're, shit. You're in front of, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll give you a sense of context. The very often we will have journalists who've been on a hundred face the nations or meet the presses or whatever's and they will get thrown by the fact that it's a live audience of 300 people mm-hmm. who might laugh at what they say or boo at what they say or applaud what they say. And there are a lot of people who are intimidated by that. Yeah. And and so we're we also because it's live and, and I think we're the last I guess John Oliver's live, but, but John Oliver pretty much works off a script. You know, we're the we're the last, I think, truly live show. We don't work with any kind of delay. You know, we're a, we're a truly live show. So yeah. we've had, in 15 years, we've had um, riots in the audience. We've had uh, death threats. We've had um, the prompter breakdown. We've had guests, the show start without the guests being there. We've had every possible thing that, that could happen has probably happened already to the point where I, I, I feel like there's ice in my veins as we, as the taping starts every week and and we have such a great team. Most of most of the people on the team, senior people especially, have been with us between fourteen and twenty-four years. I think that says a lot. That says a lot. In terms of the guests, you, that was interesting that you mentioned that you'll be watching them, sort of to see if they're ready. That's all. That's a lot of what I do. Is I'm yeah. watching um, new shows. Looking for the person who sparks me to the point where I think they might be good. Mm-hmm. And then what I'll often do is come into the booking meeting the next day and say, um, or, and I'm not the only one doing this. We have a, we have a very talented group, right. but we will be saying, saw somebody not ready yet. Let's keep an eye on them. And, um, 
Sometimes it takes a year or two for them to get on. Interesting. Now, what about celebrities? I mean, I imagine that they're not, I, I could be totally wrong, but I would think just based on, you know, the depth of conversation and the amount that you really have to know to get on that, to get on your show. It's not like, you know, Jimmy Fallon, where it's an easy fluff piece that celebs and their publicists are knocking down your door. How often are you getting approached by celebrities to come on? We get we get approached by celebrities every once in a while. I mean, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, Hugh Laurie's person called up and said, can he come on on Friday? Oh, I and, love that. Yeah, sure. Said, <laughs> and we said, no, he's we've got the show booked. Right. Um, and so we're going to try and get him on in April. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's not like people, sometimes people call us up. They call us up more now than they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's often our reaching out to people to see if they'd be interested. And sometimes it's a matter of convincing people that they'll have a great time. And then also, once we do book them, it's a matter of structuring the show to give them the optimal chance to do great. And what I generally tell people when they're on the show for the first time, particularly celebrities and particularly conservatives, is my goal is that the, at the end of the night, you to ask me, when can I come back? That's great. You know, I want to, we, we, we want to be fair to everyone. Um, I, in this era, we get a lot of pressure from liberals. I got a lot of, uh, got some emails over the weekend saying that we shouldn't be having people from the right. We give them a platform and um, we have a, different belief. We believe that uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant. We believe that, um, you know, if someone's given a spot at CPAC, they are given a platform because they're given 20 to 30 minutes to speak with no one contradicting them. Right. If you come on to do a one-on-one with Bill, you're not getting a free pass. And um, frequently we think we can I mean, we we are willing to have it be a fair fight where if your ideas are better than um, ours, great, you win. Uh, If our ideas are better, we think we win. Um, But what we think at the end of the day is that it's fair. And so there are a lot of people who, um, I mean, over the years, uh, Andrew Breitbart or Steve Bannon or Kellyanne Conway, uh, Ann Coulter, we've known for over 20 years. People, we don't pull punches and people think it's fair. And so obviously what you're saying sort of blew up to the 10th degree with this Milo. I won't even try. Milo. Milo. I won't even try to pronounce the rest of the name. Ianopolis. Okay. That's impressive. I mean, has anything like that happened in the history of real time to that extent? Um, You know, I I think so, but um, I can't. I'm I'm trying to recall right now, but certainly there have been things that have been. I mean, go back to Politically Incorrect, and we had, I remember we had um, one time three OJ juries and Roseanne what? was a was a panel. We had wow. um, a panel one time, I remember um, Cato Kalin, Gary Shandling, <laughs> Police Chief Gerald Gates, and there was a an actress named Gabriel Carteris who was the first yeah, I remember on her. that show. Of course. And um, I mean, so we had a lot of, we've right. had a lot of shows at different times that have been exactly at the flashpoint of the zeitgeist. Right. And, um, but, you know, Milo's the, the most recent one, but um, to, there a- to his credit, yeah. and I think to our credit, um, we established, we probably did more talking with him, our staff, um, 
I mean, generally, I don't talk to people until Wednesday or Thursday, and generally one of the segment producers will talk early. But this time, one of the segment producers talked to him on the Friday before he was on, a week ahead of time. And then I began talking to him on the Monday before the Friday. And um, I established that we were going to try and be, we were going to be as fair as possible. We were going to let him get his ideas out. We weren't going to have an audience screaming at him. Bill wasn't going to scream at him. And uh, and then let people conclude what they conclude. And what do you think, what was your takeaway from the sort of fallout afterwards? Well, we can't control the fallout. <laughs> All we can do is control what we produce, and we can only control a certain amount of that because once the show starts, it's live and organic. Right, exactly. Okay, so let's back up. How did you feel it went as the producer? I loved it. Okay. And did you feel like Bill, because some of the critique was that, at least I think in the overtime segment, that Bill didn't take him on t- tough enough. Well, that wasn't a critique in the overtime segment. It was a critique from people um, who one day thought we were too soft, and then two <laughs> days later, when he lost his book contract, his speaking gig, and his job, uh, thought we were heroes. So interesting. So, so we didn't change anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're open to having him back. Yeah. Um, Do you think we, he's smart? Are, I think that um, I, I don't how uh, I don't know the range of people's intelligence level <laughs> based upon the hour or two of time that I'm able to deal with them before the show or talk to them afterwards. Um, but um, I feel like our show. I watched. Let me let me say this. I, I watched a lot of video before we booked him. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what I saw were shouting fests where liberals would be talking and he would let them talk. Then when he started talking, liberals would start shouting at him or the audience would start shouting at him. And one of the first things I, one of the first conclusions I got was, well, we're not going to do that. You know, we believe in letting, we believe in free speech. Right. Also, he had had an incident at Berkeley and Bill had an incident not too dissimilar. Right. Where so he was invited to speak at Berkeley and then there was a petition drive to get him disinvited. And in our case, the um, school did not yield to the pressure. But it was ironic that it was a commencement address for the 50th anniversary of the free speech movement. Yeah. And it was ironic that they would wish to suppress free speech. No, I completely agree. I guess, you know, it's funny. I got into an unexpected sort of texting war, I don't know, with my 19-year-old stepson who knows that I'm a big fan of Bill and and real time. And he was going on and on about Milo. And I said, I what you're saying, which is I believe in free speech ultimately. And and uh, and but it did get me thinking about is there a slippery slope? Like, in other words, you know, does that mean if you have an intelligent member of the KKK on, do you give them a platform like a David Duke? And I don't know if you've had him on. Um, if you had known about the, or if you didn't, maybe you already knew about the sort of pedof- pedophilia comments. Does that make him, does that still fall under free speech? It doesn't matter that he said those things. I'm just curious, like, is there a line? Where is the line? Because it's touchy stuff. Well, there are, you just brought up th- three or four yeah, different know, issues. Sorry. So one issue was, did we know about the pedophilia uh, beforehand? And no, no. And we did a tremendous amount of research and that didn't come up. Interesting. And other things came up that we then talked to him about before the show. So I'll give, um, 
so for instance, we didn't want to be having um, anybody outed on our show, which in, there was a report that he was planning to out um, undocumented people and give their address and have the um, ICE go to their house and toss them out. In the reports of it, and he has asked for a comment, and he said that's a complete fabrication. Mm-hmm. And it turns out uh, there was no case of this. Right. Fake news. So I simply said, we wouldn't want that on our show. And he said, um, I won't do it. And he didn't. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the answer to the one to the one question. Yeah. The answer to the question about David Duke. David Duke was on Politically Incorrect after I left. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't around to produce that. Um I think that the line comes where we think a conversation cannot be conducted. Hmm. In other words, there are some um, screaming, ranting people who, putting aside the, the quality of their ideas, they simply are not willing to conduct a... A conversation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one place where a line would be easily drawn. We didn't think that was going to be the case with Milo. Yeah. And in, my, and in my phone conversations with him and in our, the phone conversations of other people on the staff, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the main takeaway I read about more than anything was that Bill gave him the rope to hang himself. Um well, <laughs> that's a characterization by others. Right. I would say I would say that we believe in um letting people be heard but then countering. I mean, the very first question the bill had was coached in the dependent clause. By the way, I think the most of what you think is colossally wrong. Mhm. Mhm. What um it's so interesting because, you know, the show, obviously there's scripted segments, you know, new rules and the ending monologue, but obviously the conversations, I mean, I know how these shows are produced basically, but they're not, there's no teleprompter on these conversations. Um, how, since it is live, you know, how, how tightly produced is it in terms of like, is there two, you know, you're going to get three minutes for the segment about Russia. You're going to get four minutes on immigration. Like, is it, you know, is it sort of from the old days of producing news where you're literally giving each topic an amount of time or do you just sort of let let it go and see where it goes? Well, it's like the plan that a fighter has before he gets into the <laughs> ring. Yeah. You can have a plan, but once the bell rings, the plan goes away. So, for instance, the Jeffrey Lord interview on last yeah. Friday's show went five minutes over. Hmm. Because it was just so juicy. Like he just you just let it go because it's so good. Uh, you know, Bill keeps going until he doesn't. I mean, I mean, we as we get to the end of the hour, yeah, the deadlines become need to become more enforced. Right at the beginning, with the monologue, which is a set number of jokes, but the top of show, the top of show is probably where there is the most flexibility. Mm-hmm. Right, because you're not trying to get to an endpoint yet. What's the thing that will piss off Bill the most? Does Bill have one thing? That you know, if you do it, he's just gonna, it's going to ruin the show for him. Um, I, I think it's if we have a guest that's non-responsive, that's just right. not answering the question, not sticking with 
what we want to talk about and is trying to evade. Uh, that's that's irritating. But also, I think we've done this so long now. We've been doing it for 15 years. And at the end of 15 years, you've seen almost all kinds of behavior. Yeah. So when someone starts to evade, I mean, that's another actually good thing about the top uh, show or the mid show is that he can stop it at right. any time. Go to the panel. Right. Um, and so we don't let much bother us mm-hmm. now. And what I started saying a few years ago, which which is now a an adage around our bungalows, is we don't do bad shows. Right. I mean, what we try and do is not do the same show two weeks in a row. But even even the show that wasn't the show that we intended has its own compelling charm. Yeah. And 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 I would put it up against the discussion on a lot of other news programs. There are conversations that we have had that I feel like, where is this conversation being done on the allegedly grown-up news? A hundred percent. I mean, I always say, because I am sort of always been an ambassador for the show, and just how are you not watching it if you're not? Because I said, and again, this is not documented, I'm not investigated, but just from my own knowledge, there is no other show that exists that gives a a commercial-free conversation an hour you know, about current events in an hour-long format. I mean, is there? I don't know that there is. You know, John Oliver is different, right, because it's usually a single topic. John, John does 30 minutes. Oh, it's 30 of, minutes, of exactly. prompter material. Right, so this is and, totally different. And, and so it's often when people try to manufacture a competition between us. It's so silly. We are not the same at all because right. he's Sunday night, he's a half hour, he does 22, 23 minutes where he's um, of prepared material, we do an hour, yeah, and and it's Friday night, so it's fresh on whatever happened that day, right? And um, so we're in two different cycles. We're in, uh, you know, we, we're we're delighted um, that John exists on HBO, and we would have been happy had the Bill Simmons show succeeded on Wednesday nights. Yeah, and we're, yeah, you know, we we for years and years we would complain to the network. <laughs> And by the way, HBO, there is no better place to work. But still, we would often say we have we have never had a live lead in. Yeah. So very often, first few years, we were doing shows after the eighth rerun of Arliss, not to knock Arliss, or right. the fifth rerun of some movie. So we were having to be manufacturing our audience right. from nothing. Right. There was no lead in. It's not like, um, let's say... I have, you know, friends in Curb Your Enthusiasm who will talk about the show became a hit when we followed The Sopranos. Mm. We don't have a Sopranos debuting before us. Yeah. So, so, you know, so we feel that it's taken all this time to develop this loyal, loyal, uh, enormous audience on Friday nights and then throughout the next week, throughout the Wednesday um, re-airings. Right. And then also on the web. I was, and DVR, of course, is a game changer. Mm-hmm. So you guys, um, it was funny, at the end of the Friday night show, Bill was announcing his dates and he said, what can I, something like, what can I tell you if Trump's been good for business? Um, and I imagine for the show, it's, have your ratings gone up since he took office? Our ratings have gone up since he announced his candidacy. Yeah. However, 
Um, I think that I can speak for everyone on the show. We would rather have lower ratings and a more stable universe. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. I couldn't agree more. I mean, is that is there a sort of simmering rage in the writer's room? I mean, what is the mood? I mean, uh, it's obviously so ripe for comedy. It's it's a caricature. But is it have you guys sort of become demoralized in the way that we all have? <laughs> I, w- I would say this is not the time to be demoralized. I would say that this is the time for every citizen to be the best, most responsible version of themselves in this democracy. That if you aren't voting, you are enabling. Yes. If, if you um, aren't an informed voter, you are an enabler of ignorance. Um, I would say that um, we are not a demoralized group. We are, we've been challenged. Um, uh, we've got, ch- we, we, you know, we're challenged anytime free speech is challenged um i mean we had yeah. chilling we've had chilling episodes um i mean when the charlie hebdo staff was um attacked and killed that's chilling to anyone who does what we do of course um and so and do you get does that get in your head do you get scared it was on our head for about three days yeah uh and we've taken precautions uh we've done as much as we can do but then we want to live our lives right. and do our work. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my final question is, where do you see, I mean, this is obviously juggernaut. It's not going anywhere indefinitely. Where do you, I know you mentioned going back to playwriting. Where do you see your career in the next 15 years? Oh, that I would be <laughs> a, around 15 years from now. I would then be ancient. I don't um, think so. Uh, uh, I, I would, first of all, we've we've been, our contract now extends for another 63 shows we're we're uh picked up through the midterms of 2018 okay. and we you know we could go after that and hbo has been hbo has been incredibly supportive we have such smart people beginning with richard plepler yeah and uh, casey bloys and nina rosenstein who who are very supportive of us we have been just incredible people, Quentin Chaffer, and they could not be more. Sub- in other words, we're one of the lucky few groups in the world of television <laughs> who are ordered to be as smart as you can every day when you go to work. Wow! And um, so we take that very seriously. Yeah. And um, and then, however seriously we take the network's mandate, Bill even has a higher mandate for himself of. We've already done that, Joe. We've already done. We've already right. made this point. Um, you know, we keep um, we keep very um, stringent monitoring of all other shows to make sure we don't do anybody else's joke. Right. And we also, in the same way, monitor ourselves to make sure we're not repeating ourselves. So it gets to be more. Each year gets to be more and more challenging. Right. On the one hand, Trump is a furnishes. Um, us with material. On the other hand, it's moving so quickly that it's hard to catch up. <laughs> I can, and I'm sure things are breaking an hour before air. I mean, that's got to be hard too. Well, we have a live show. That's what I'm saying. So we're able to. So we're able to. What we do when something's breaking right before the show um, is we will use. We'll get an article that we feel is neutral. Yeah. And we'll give the article to Bill and all the guests. So that everyone is working off the same facts mm. if we're to bring this up. And sometimes he and I communicate. I, I'm typing things into a monitor underneath his desk during the show. Sometimes we break things as they're as they're happening. Mm-hmm. And that's on, on those nights, 
you feel lucky to be doing, well, you feel lucky anyway to be doing live TV. Then you feel lucky anyway to be, do, be doing live TV on HBO, where you can be as smart as, 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 as is your talent. You can yes. be as smart as you can be. Um, but then you feel especially lucky when you feel like you're at the nexus of technological capability and and where the events of the world are. Yeah. Um, do you call it a comedy show? Do you look at it as a comedy show or as a news show? How do you characterize it? Um, we're 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 entertainment. Yeah. Um, we we are. I mean, we first are funny. Uh, there, there are three mandates that I've sort of identified that have increased over the years. I mean, our first notion, our first obligation is to be funny and entertaining. Uh, our second obligation uh, that we've realized reluctantly over a period of time is that we are also there to, to inform people who are not able to watch the news as carefully as we do. Yeah. The third uh, direction that I've become aware of in the last year, especially since the election, is we're also being looked to for direction. Like, how do I, how should I feel? Or not how should I feel, what should I do? What should I do? Right. Good. I'm not going to let you off the hook on my question about what you're going to do. Oh, <laughs> oh, my goal would be that um, I, I, I will never do another show after this. This will be the last show. So I will probably be with it as long as it exists. And as long as it exists, it's it continues to be fun, even when we have... Uh, questions and, you know, differences of opinion right. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. <laughs> um, Friday, 99 times out of 100, everyone's happy after the show, um, which is very rare. So maybe once every two or three years, there's a show we don't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm because we're such a well-oiled machine, I'm also able to do um, a lot of writing of my own projects. And I have two new plays. I have, you know, this th- three or four more, three or four or five more productions of Discord being done, leading up to New York in September. So I Discord, feel... just because we were talking about it off mic, Discord is your new play. Oh right, yes. It, well, it's not new. I've been working on <laughs> okay. it. I got the idea in 1987 right. uh, when I found out about the Jefferson Bible, and then I later found out. I think I'm the I think I'm the first person in history to put together the fact that Thomas Jefferson, Charles Dickens, and Leo Tolstoy all wrote their own gospels. Um, and, um, so this is something I've been working on since, on and off since 1987, uh, which is also when I started television and, um, and, uh, and it's now, it was done 101 times in Los Angeles in 2014. And then it's since been done all over the country and then opens in New York in the fall. So cool. Do you find that writing, um, is an escape? in terms of like, oh, I can't wait to get home and write or be a Saturday morning and have my coffee and write? Or is it is it tough? You know, is it because it's such a different muscle than what you're doing during the week? It's a it's a it's a sanity enhancer when you work in the enforced collaboration of television and the enforced high stakes collaboration of live television. Yeah. I can go off and I can rewrite a line for the next month. Right, right. You know, when I when I heard, I'm not comparing myself to Lin-Manuel Miranda, but when he said that it took him a year to write the first song in Hamilton and another year to write the second song, I know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. I don't have that muscle, so I can't imagine. But I, I can imagine that it would be like giving birth in the sense of, you know, you've created now a life that is this play that's going to now go on in all of these cities that you've you've done. Well, let me end with one uh, 
story that just makes yeah. me happy every time I, I think Please. about it. There's a class that I do at UCLA once a year for the last three years where I go in and there are 20, between 20 and 30 graduate students in somewhere in film or television or theater or whatever, and, um, or uh, video games or mm-hmm. whatever, but they're graduate students. And I go in for three hours and I talk to them all. And my, my deal at the beginning of the three hours is if any of you say anything that prompts some lesson that I've learned the hard way, yeah. I will stop and tell it. And then we'll just keep going until we get through everybody and we'll see if I can be helpful to anyone's career. And so this, and so the last one I did um, about a month or so ago um, was a class that was predominantly foreign. There were people from um, Chile and China and Japan. And there was a guy from Switzerland who'd just been nominated for an Oscar for best um, live action short feature. There were, uh, uh, there was a woman from Moscow all over. When I got to this woman from Brazil, I said, I said, everybody has to tell me what's your name? Um, what was your major? What did you focus in? Um, and what country are you from? Where are you from? And where do you want to be in five years? So this woman said, well, I was undergraduate at UCLA. Then I went back to Brazil to work in television. And then I've come back here to learn more. And then I want to go back to Brazil. And I want to do this very specific kind of television that I already started doing in Brazil, but I want to learn how to do it better. And I said, what kind of television is that? And she said, well, in, in tw- she said, when I was an undergraduate, I went to this play because UCLA is on the, on the grounds of the Geffen, right next to the grounds of the Geffen Theater. And she said, I went to this play and there was this incredible dialogue between Thomas Jefferson and Charles Dickens and Leo Tolstoy. And they were arguing. That's weird. And I want to do shows like this where people argue about the ideas of the day. And I said, that was my play. That's insane. I mean, of all of the things she could have mentioned. Yeah. Was that so gratifying? Yeah. That must have been a moment. Yeah. Yeah. To realize that here's a young woman at the beginning of her career who's going to go back down to South America and she's going. So I got her. So then I got her a copy of the play and I signed it to her. And and, um, you know, that, that but that made me smile for the next week. I, I make, that's going to make me smile. You're paying it forward. That's a really wonderful story. I mean, I guess that's the most you can hope for, right? I mean, you get your, every Friday night you feel great after a show, but that's a whole other feeling. So a testament to you, your incredible career. I'm just, you know, glad to have spun in your orbit for a short time. And, and thank you for putting out such incredible product uh, week after week. It's really, you know, you guys really make a huge difference, at least in my life and many others. Thank you very much. And this was a pleasure. Pleasure.